Welcome to our 30th Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast and forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO here at the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce and I'd like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we gather the Wajak people and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Today we're exploring the stories of success and failure in embracing new industries, an untrodden path and the current trends around emerging marine, technology and carbon industries. This learning forum is relevant to anyone considering a shift into a new venture in emerging or existing industry where there is no template, a conversation in leadership, risk and venturing. Today's conversation is coming live from the Sonar we could almost call it sauna room, really, couldn't we, in Fremantle, where industry leaders have spent this morning gathering in this very room to discuss the state of the blue economy at the annual Blue Economy Forum. I'm so looking forward to hearing how the discussions today have gone and what we are seeing on the very near horizon. What we know of emerging industries, from the tech bubble to blockchain to Shopify to solar panels, we know that when we look back, we see those with foresight saw the wave coming, they got on board and they rode it. And we now have a world where we can't imagine a world without those things. For some, in some cases, the bubble burst. In others, market leaders failed and the fast followers reigned supreme. In other cases, the market leaders stayed so agile and in front of the curve that they simply took the next wave and continued to thrive. We have spoken a lot in our earlier podcasts on commercialising ideas, systems for growth and creating strong businesses for the future. Today's conversation builds on all of those things. However, we're going to take a deep dive, a deep dive right into how we apply them to emerging marine and technology sectors and to chat to three very successful leaders in this field to get their insight into what they have learnt along the way, the opportunities, the pitfalls, and particularly how we venture into the unknown. So, Andrew, first on our panel today. Andrew is a director of 4Blue at the centre of the 4Blue Economy Innovation in Western Australia. He has previously grown social ventures, leading systematic change in WA and the UK, including MeshPoints, Startup WA, Pollinators Incorporated, Goodness Festival and Spark Challenge. Andrew's experience as a leader and innovator is complemented by training and qualifications in research, combining rigorous scientific inquiry and care for human development. Pre-COVID, he worked in regional WA, Scandinavia, the UK, Asia, the US and Canada as a researcher, facilitator and consultant, including attracting more than $20 million in funding and investment for clients' ventures. Banks, schools, governments, sector-specific advocacy and sporting groups have trusted Andrew to guide their strategy and governance as a strategy director and chair. Andrew has an enduring affection for silence and emptiness. I really envy that, Andrew, because whilst I ache it, I very rarely achieve it, uh, including the ocean, on bikes, and especially when shared with others, interspersed with laughter in wild places. Andrew, it is so clear you're passionate about innovation, startups, and your work, both for 4Blue and in Pollinators. You've advised so many different businesses on taking an idea into a path that is emerging, but very much still on the horizon. I'd love to kick off today by discussing what advice you would give someone who, like you, has a passion for the marine environment or new technology and wants to start a business or shift their business into an emerging industry. Where do they begin to start to make that a reality? Great question. Um, I think one of the things, perhaps, from my background in, in marine science is paying close attention to the landscape or ecosystem that you're, you're thinking about moving into. 
because passion and enthusiasm is great. Um, before you take the leap or dive in, you might want to sort of check what the conditions are. Um, before you hit the reef, you mean? Yeah, yeah. before you hit the reef. <laughs> um, I think early, early in my career, um, I would take these like big leaps into the unknown, um, thinking I needed to change everything. Um, but I think a more mature perspective is going, okay, that looks like a really interesting direction. Let's do a bit of research, look into it, take, you know, move forward and take bold steps. Um, yeah, but perhaps don't dive in all at once. Um, I think a useful perspective is thinking about it as, as an investor, an investor of your time, energy and attention. Um, and to also use, you know, if you don't have a scientific mind or you're not that interested in doing in-depth market research, to use people as proxies. Mm. So to find someone who knows that industry or knows that landscape or is, or is really tuned in and have a bit of a chat to them before before you dive in because often they've got all sorts of knowledge and experience that can tune you into how likely your venture is to succeed um, or what the challenges are in that industry which can shortcut a lot of your own research. Um, I think all those things I'm really, I'm really giving advice to sort of be a bit cautious, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't want to. Which deny is ironic, given we're talking <laughs> about throwing yourself into a new industry that no one's done anything in before. Which, which yeah. I think is what I was going to say. Is it assumes that you're right, really psyched <laughs> um, and enthusiastic, and you, you really have spotted what you think is an opportunity. It's just that that sort of, you know, checking is this really a thing? Um, so. You know, both having that passion, enthusiasm and belief, but blending it with a bit of sort of critical scepticism and, you know, thoughtfulness. Um, that's a useful balance I've seen in people. And if people go too far one way or the other, they're too cautious and they're always analysing and they never do anything, or they're overly passionate, think they're the centre of the universe, this is news to everyone, and they never quite hear or notice that it's going off track or it's never going never mm. to land. I think they're very wise words. I know when I was starting businesses a long time ago, I went to an amazing speaker that said similarly and also that I think the statistics are that 50% of businesses that succeed come from a base of existing knowledge in some way or form or that you are applying a world that you kind of know and willing to take a step into or, as you said, Andrew, that you really thoroughly research that world before you jump in. Next on our panel is Matthew Allen. Matt is a founder, business development manager for Subcon. Matthew, or Matt, I should say, is passionate about enabling ocean communities to thrive. You've pioneered large-scale engineering with natural solutions to address coastal erosion, fisheries decline, marine tourism, and marine asset retirement. Matt started his career with six years in the Merchant Navy following which he studied a Bachelor of Engineering in Naval Architecture at the Australian Maritime College and subsequently built a successful career as a construction manager in offshore energy before founding Subcon in 2001 with Dr Kervin Yao. The business has grown internationally with offices in Delft, Singapore and Perth and now employs over 20 people. Matt is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, holds an executive MBA from UWA, a bachelor's degree in engineering and technology from the Australian Maritime College. You know, when we were talking about people that know some things before they dive in, I'm thinking there's some pretty solid foundations there, Matt. Um, the Blue Solutions team at Subcon have built 26 large-scale engineering reefs, including the iconic Gold Coast dive attraction, and are currently working on fringing reef projects for erosion control at CY O'Connor Beach, 
and their new Australian Underwater Discovery Centre in Busselton. An amazing career there, Matt, and we're so very lucky to obviously have you on the panel this morning. Um, you founded a business that in a way has its base in traditional marine engineering and services, things like stabilisation, marine grouting, a whole lot of range of very technical, I guess, aspects um, to your business. But then you've linked it into a brave new world of reef renaissance, which I loved that you described as fusing science, engineering and art. I don't think I've ever seen the word renaissance and art linked to engineering, but I think it's a great starting point for this conversation. The fusion does reflect, I guess, many of the aspects though required in a new world when you're dealing with the unknown. It is a little bit of art and it is a little bit of science and how it all comes together. And, you know, we are also talking about links between traditional infrastructure and traditional systems with growing populations and a balance between getting it right in terms of environmental protection, as well as supporting that marine environment. I'd love you just to start with talking us through your journey from how you got to that point of making a decision in your business to push the organisation to supporting the natural systems and how you create that balance between protection and the commercial drivers that you need to keep your business going. Okay, thanks, uh, and great to be on your podcast. Um, I'll firstly uh, just say that the Renaissance really harks back to Da Vinci and and uh, their cohort of engineers and scientists and artists that embraced all of those disciplines um, at, at that stage of the Renaissance. Um, and in a way, it was braving a whole new world. Yeah, yeah correct, correct. Um, so uh, we've really been inspired to an extent by that. Um, in terms of your question of how we got into habitat restoration, uh, it actually started out as something we did for fun. Um, Western Australia started building uh, artificial reefs down south as part of the fisheries enhancement program. And uh, our unique engineering skills in hydrodynamics and scour and erosion control really lent themselves to that market. Um, so we kind of piled in for, you know, because we like fishing. And, uh, but fairly, fairly quickly realised that there were no engineers in the, in the space of ecosystem restoration, which was, is actually really sad. Um, so they tend to be led by diving interest groups and, and scientists who are, are great at diving and science, but when it comes to building things at scale, that's what, what we've spent our lives being trained to do. Um, and looking out for all the reefs that you can possibly bang your yeah, head on. Yeah, absolutely. correct, correct. I think that yeah. engineering mindset is so useful in identifying yeah. how you get through some of those roadblocks as well. Yeah, yeah, correct. There's lots of thinking around how, how you make the most efficient use of your materials, uh, the stability of the structures, um, how you can maximise the return for the client. And I, I think at the heart of our success was really understanding the value proposition to the client, and that's where the the um, environmental side and the commercial side re really come together in a, in a really important way. Um, we've been able to double the amount of habitat that the clients get for their money, which we're, we're very proud of. Um, uh, and that's underpinned our success as being able to repeatedly deliver these projects. So we've used lots of robotics to install them, um, which is a, you know, some technology and approach we took from oil and gas. Um, where we try and do things diverless from a safety perspective. And uh, we've built that into the um, habitat restoration project and it enables us to build habitat really quickly, uh, which it, it then enables us to do it at scale. Mm. And that, I guess, taking those traditional 
knowledge around engineering and structure yeah. and I guess then freeing the mind to look at automated solutions and yeah. other things. How do you go about that process? Is it something that's intuitive or do you sort of gather around and go, right, engineering hat off, creative hat on? How does it kind of work yeah, from that perspective? Uh, so, so we have a motto which is innovate freely and deliver rigorously. Yeah. And uh, so, so we try and have sessions which are really – uh, the innovation sessions are really around um, how we're going to address the problem. Um, so the, the creativity then is really breaking breaking down the problem into its components of, uh, you know, what are the roadblocks, what's the value proposition, what's the business case, how can we deliver it in a unique way for the client. Um, it's all client-focused, uh, really keenly listening to what their pain points are. I think that's that kind of hardcore commercial business side of you've got to solve a problem for someone that has value to them if you're going to have a, a uh, sustainable business. Uh, and then we look at the execution of it, and that's really a, a discipline for us around um, minimising costs, minimising material usage, optimising the installation, which is where a lot of the, the money gets spent in the marine environment is in, in installation you know, boats and divers and all of <laughs> and that And that's consistent just, across the board, whether yeah. you're starting up a seaweed business and you need Correct. boats and physical infrastructure. Yeah. It's not an easy yep. environment to do work in, Correct. for sure. Yep. And I loved your line about working with the client in order to identify what problem they're trying to solve. And in our commercialising yep. ideas, that was absolutely one of the key themes. To, to commercialise an idea, you actually have to understand what problem you're trying to solve. And yep. When you can identify what problem you're trying to solve, then you know you've potentially got a market for it and who that market Correct. is. Yeah, yep. It's really interesting. Keith, I will move to you now um, as third on our panel and then we'll open up to a more broad discussion. Um, Keith Wallace is General Manager, Blue Ocean Marine Services. Uh, Keith, you have a global reputation for your work as a marine scientist with over 20 years of experience in developing technical teams and delivering projects in the offshore sector. You've played a significant role within uh, the Blue Ocean Monitoring Group, a world leader in the development and application of ocean-going autonomous technology. I think the heat's getting to me, my pronunciation there. Um, and more recently, you've established the Blue Ocean Marine Service Division, working directly with energy and engineering companies around the world to increase operational efficiencies while driving environmental awareness and compliance. Blue Ocean Monitoring was established on the vision that remote autonomous technologies should and will play a major role in the future of marine data collection, or as we heard from um, earlier, just around um, even just delivering infrastructure projects in the ocean, um, but particularly maritime data for you, collection around reduction in environmental impacts and understanding, I guess, what the ocean is doing and how it's doing it. Um, increase efficiencies, drive down costs and minimise risks in maritime operations. Keith, you're really at the pointy end of emerging industries around marine and technology and, and also the use of data and how that gets applied um, in our world and in our marine environment. Can you talk us briefly through your journey, through your years of experience as a marine scientist into the relatively, I guess, unknown remote autonomous collection of data um, and I guess the, the world of how you use that information and what it's used for in the marine environment and what your key learning has been along that journey? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I'll take a, 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 as a bit of background to, to my career. Um, yeah, just over 20 years of experience in the marine science world. Um, a passion for the ocean, some form of aptitude in maths and sciences, and, uh, and a few documentaries along the way got me into, into marine science. Uh, but then in the later part of my 
uh, academic career, really uh, enjoyed the physical oceanographic side of business. Yeah. And with that came oceanographic uh, surveys. So um, I, in my early career, was part of the engineering world. Yeah. So really doing small, I mean, we're to say small, one-off projects to support port, near shore, uh, engineering projects to inform the design criteria, et cetera. But that scaled up quick, uh, moved to New York and, and looking at projects in the, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. We started looking at larger scale projects. We were looking at you know, multidisciplinary, long-term projects throughout the uh, North America, Central America, and the Middle East. Um, so all of a sudden, we're, we're dealing with a lot more people, a lot more equipment, and a lot more data. And, you know, marine science gets a bloody good rap, you know, in that it looks attractive to get on boats. And, <laughs> but it, it's, it's bloody hard. You yeah. know, it's, it's a tough gig. And as, as, as Claudio had said in a, in a talk previously, it's, you know, it's, it's intensive. It's labor intensive. Uh, finding the right people for the job, finding the right equipment for the job, getting them all at the same place and time and space. You're not and even guaranteed success. And the same ocean, exactly. you know, conditions, exactly. all of those things. Uh, exactly. So, you know, it's... Um, it's got a pretty low yield when it comes to the, the program you have to put together, the money you have to put in. So, and, and it can be dangerous. You know, the, the ocean environment is dangerous. There's risk to projects, there's risk to human health. So you put all of that together and you see autonomous solutions coming over the hill. Lots of things happening in the robotic space terrestrially. You're looking at autonomous systems in, in space and in defense. So it was only a matter of time that, that would then come to marine science and it was, it was welcomed with open arms. Mm. The ability to put robots into places that were dirty, dull, dangerous potentially, um, and have high yields of data come back was extraordinary. It's a complete game changer. So with my business, we could see the potential of these systems and, and, and not just in the sort of oil and gas or the more affordable type sectors. We could see that this evolution would happen right through the the, the, the sectors, and that's not just looking at physical oceanography, it's really looking at all the sciences, ecological, chemical, biological. So Blue Ocean Monitoring was, was formed, um, it was about seven years ago, and yeah, I mean, we straight away jumped, jumped in at the deep end, you know, we jumped in, uh, this, is, this is going to be the, 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 the industry that's going to, to revolutionize how we do things at sea, and, and yes, it's, it's, we're getting there. I think um, we're a bit fast off the block in terms of our ambitions. But we're seeing that that's now a mature When you say a bit fast off the block, you mean in terms of the capital it would take or the market or...? What was available to us in terms of the solution? Okay. You know, so it was an evolving and it's, and it's still evolving so fast. So going back to your question about a key learning was that, you know, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of applications out there. Mm -hmm. You know, one size does not fit all. So, you know, we... The differencing in our selection of autonomous systems would be things like, is it a surface system? Is it a subsurface system? Is it up close and personal, a near, near uh, proximity type measurement, or is it a far field measurement? Do we need to be in the water for hours, or do we need to be in the water for months? Mm. What sensor payloads do I need to put on there? That may then also change the size of the systems. What depth are we going to? So there's all of that, and even when you go through this whole matrix of questions, 
You mean you don't spring up a guy and go, hey, well, get me some autonomous technology that's going to work? I have to turn around and say, <laughs> autonomy is not going to solve your problem. Yeah. So there are other technologies that are developed. You know, there's the traditional technologies that I'm used to from a marine science background on a vessel, a fixed station. There's remotely operated ROV on tether technologies. There's always a solution, but it's just finding the right one. So really backtracking from the application. And autonomy just gives you that extra dimension of um, options. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess you don't want to go so far down a path that the next technology is also coming in and what you actually end up with is outdated by the time you get there. Yeah, they're coming in fast. Yeah. Is that something you've experienced as well, Matt? Uh, definitely, yeah. And we're seeing a, a big shift in uh, demands on even at a government level on approvals and what type of technology you can get approved. And you'd see that in the autonomous space. Uh, a few years ago, you couldn't launch an autonomous vehicle um, because the regulator said you had to be there with a the boat and it kind of destroys your business case, you know. So we're, we're certainly seeing that in, in uh, uh, erosion control and things like that as well. It's amazing how regulatory control can be such a barrier to commercialising ideas as well, particularly in areas where that, I guess, the, the, the regulation structure hasn't caught up with where the industry can go. And we certainly even heard that in the commercialising ideas around some pharmaceutical innovation that literally fell apart because the regulation hadn't caught up. Andrew, is that something that you see a lot in terms of when you're looking and advising? And obviously you've got really strong ties into government mm. as well. That political, I guess, and economic and policy framework, how do, I guess, new businesses sort of navigate some of that in some of their ability to um, move ahead of regulation when regulation can be the very thing that pulls you back? Yeah, I think it does, it does vary by industry and where you're sitting on the, the spectrum. I think if we, if we want to use a, uh, an ocean metaphor, it would be that um, catching a wave, like, say, a, a growing trend in a market or um, an emerging trend in technology... Um, or seeing some new legislation coming, um, more and more I sort of advise people to say, well, sort of have some view of what's coming in the next 20 years, next 10, next 5, next 1, um, and sort of invest your effort appropriately. Um, so if you're going to buy some new technology that's really hot right now but you don't think it's going to be around in five years, well, maybe moderate that a bit rather than thinking I can just see one wave coming and... Yeah, and, and that's going to be everything. Mm. Um, a sense of time and timing is really important. Um, but we kind of know waves coming... Oh, sorry, I interrupt you a bit. We kind of know waves coming three, even if they do odd things. Oh. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh. you were about to say about the legislation, <laughs> but I'll, I'll come back to that. But, say, you know, you are forecasting, aren't you? You're still kind of trying to make assumptions in a relatively unknown where there's not even consistent sort of rhythm that it will come in three or that your five, ten and twenty-year horizon is going to look like that. Yeah, I... But it's a good um, it's a good rule of thumb to to try and just try and map out rather than rather than think everything's going to hit at once. Um, I think whether it be yeah autonomy or um, you know new, new sources of investment or um, you know ESG being a priority for clients or new legislation coming in, there is a sense of um, yeah, but when. And like with what force um, and how likely is that to, to really affect our business? So it's just a bit of bit of discernment there. Um, some of it's not predictable, but you yeah you can do your 
do your best. Bit of diligence, I guess, around that. So it's not just understanding what problem you're trying to solve, what the market is, but also where the regulatory environment and other competing factors. Yeah, change. like an, an example, I often sort of say, well, you know, your, your business model may be sort of 70% this right now, um, but, you know, 20% of your effort put into what you think the next wave is going to be and 10% have it out there for, you know, really far in the future. If you don't put the 70% into your current business model and current customers, well, you won't make it to the next wave because mm. you'll, you'll run out of cash or you'll be disconnected from the real trends. You'll yeah. just be, you know, you're just building everything into a moonshot um, as in, you know, something you think is going to come but it's a really long bet and won't pay off for 10 years. Um, yeah, so that's, that's some rules of thumb I use. Um, Keith, one of Andrew's comments when we started was just around the fact that you can do so much analysis that it almost kills you from making a decision or versus just throwing yourself in. As someone, I guess, that's looking at that data very regularly and making decisions in quite an analytical way, how do you get that balance right between the doing and the researching? Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question in that, you know, we, we have systems or people on the water, we want to collect as much information yeah. As, as you can, Give it all. But, you know, <laughs> you get to this bottleneck where you, it becomes useless that you know you don't even open up that data set because it's it's a it's a hornet's nest. Yeah. Um, I think you know really at the front end we're designing our programs based on the application, the client's application, and very specifically around that the value adds come after. Okay. So you know focusing on that is clear, and, it's, and especially with a, an emerging technology where there may be some skepticism in the market, and there is skepticism yeah. still. You know we have to do what it says on the tin. So go out there and achieve your primary objectives. And then if you can collect additional data that may benefit the client or another interested stakeholder, you know, that's the secondary. So you can say doing, making sure we do what we say we're going to do, knowing your capability, more importantly, knowing your limitations, uh, getting that right, you don't have to upsell. Yeah. You can manage expectations, you've got clear objectives. Uh, when it comes to big data, it's inevitable, even when there, there are clear objectives that you have an extraordinary amount of data coming out of these systems. That is the next hurdle for us as a, as a growing business. We've got the tools, we've got the skills to get out there, get the, the, the machines in the right places. But how do we manage that data? You know, when we're looking at qualitative data and quantitative data, how do we marry those up? You know, how, do we, how do we section it off when we're looking through space or looking through time? You know, this blows my mind. We've got some variants. good guys behind yeah, the scenes and, yeah. and I, I do a lot of nodding and, and they seem to be doing okay. Yeah. I can absolutely imagine that. And I, I liked your analogy too, that often when you're dealing with a client or someone's paying you to gather that data, you very much have to deliver to their brief and sort of do a little bit of value add on the top where you can. Matt, is that something that you do as well with when you're sort of, I guess, developing some of these unknowns in terms of brief technology and other things that you sort of deliver to the client and then squeeze a little bit at the edge? How do you kind of go about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we have a term for that. We call it R&D by stealth. I love it. And uh, <laughs> we're, we're always looking at how we can leverage opportunities. Um, but I'd also say relationships are, are really key. Uh, when you're bringing a new idea to the market, if you're doing it from a, a standing start, if you haven't got that 70% core business, underlying everything, it's really difficult to have credibility with a client um, and often the 20% the innovative step you want to make is for the same client or, 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 or you know, close, close associates of mm -hmm. theirs um, and that goes right through to the regulator. You know, the regulator are people uh, and having relationships with them is important. Um, 
with government is really important to have those relationships to enable uh, the introduction of new technology. It's such an interesting point you say, and I think for anyone developing a new business, you almost yeah. need that, trust me, I'm going to be able to do this Correct. because I've yeah. got this history and this background. And I think yeah. we heard that in all of your introductions. You know, none of you have launched into an environment where you couldn't go, I've had 30 years of experiencing yeah. this. I have some capability to actually deliver it. And I think that story needs to be so carefully crafted in new businesses so that any relationship that you're forming comes from that. Place. Correct. It's even just being pre-qualified with a client and, mm. you, you know, on the payroll, if you like, as an approved contractor, um, you, you know, if, you, if you're doing that on something, an everyday part of your business, it's just infinitely easier to come to them with, a, with an innovative step. And I guess that change then becomes incremental. And so, as Andrew said, you can Correct. catch the new waves coming because yep. you're just incrementally investing that little bit each time and you haven't gone all in. Yeah, I mean, as, as um, I've been reading, I, I read a lot of great books. <laughs> a lot of very wise people out there. Um, but I was reading one recently by Ben Horowitz, who's from um, A16Z. It's like a venture capital fund in Silicon Valley. Um, but he he cites rappers and samurai and draws from like very wide cultural context. But um, he was sort of making some recommendations about like don't disrupt, essentially. Um, and that same sort of message came through from Peter Thiel. He's written a book about going zero to one. Yeah. Um, so he's one of the guys behind PayPal. Uh, and that you shouldn't aim to disrupt. It's actually super expensive if you go out there and think, I'm going to change this whole industry. Rather, he was saying, look, why don't you work with the existing of what is, transform that significantly. Um, if you go out there to disrupt, that's yeah, highly risky, likely to be expensive. You're likely to offend a lot of people, not get good real data and feedback on what you're doing. You're sort of already putting yourself out there and isolated. Yeah. Um, it's always like people have fallen in love with the idea of innovation is disruption. It's like, well, there's a bit of evolution, but there's also design, like we want it to go here, but we're going to be sensible out and smart about the steps we take along the way. Um, perhaps the other thing to mention there, and so don't disrupt is the... Um, there's something about paying attention to, to how quickly disruptions are going to come, whether it be in the form of yeah, new regulations um, or, or maturity of technologies. Um, I think an example I can cite is from, from plastics and plastics in the ocean. Is I, I just haven't seen anything like it in the last 12 months, how that's gone from a community issue, things were concerned yeah. about to like right in the wheelhouse of the biggest corporates, mm -hmm. the biggest oil producers on earth. And a lot of that actually is being driven by extended producer responsibility in Southeast Asia. Regulation there moving ahead of Western countries, um, but the investment implications and the corporates are in, in Western, sorry, in, in Southeast Asia, but the investment is in Western countries. And I, I wouldn't have picked plastics to sort of for the curve on that to steepen so quickly. Um, so when I'm looking at things like, you know, blockchain or autonomy, um, you sort of got to pay a, pay attention to like, mm, is that is that coming? Is that steep? Is that curve steepening really quickly, um, or is that still ten years away? Mm. Yeah, mm. definitely. A um, couple of great, I guess, sort of pitfalls to watch out for. For there, anything else you'd like to add, um, either Matt or Keith, just around. 
I guess if you are moving into these new markets, um, we've talked about regulatory pitfalls. We've talked about the speed with which you invest and how much you take on. Um, we've also, I guess, just kind of briefly touched on how fast the curve is and making sure you kind of see the curve before it comes. Is there anything else in terms of key pitfalls that you think businesses should be aware of when they're moving and thinking about doing the crazy things that you guys have kind of done? <laughs> yeah, well, Andrew talked about the moonshot before yeah. and don't disrupt uh and i'd reinforce that we we have that as a discipline we if we've uh got a moonshot that we want to take we break it down into a thousand pieces and and just take iterative steps along the way because um you need to test at each stage and learn from your failures and re-implement and you also need to answer questions for your client so if you go to them with the moonshot, they'll have a thousand questions. But if you go to them with one iterative step mm -hmm. and you take it and you go, oh, the wheels didn't fall off, let's go take the next, next one. Next one, yeah. Uh, you, I'd you love to take know, everyone like, with you on with the journey. Apple. Did they, you know? did they the, the wheels didn't, didn't fall off. off. The Tesla didn't crash. Yeah. You know? yeah, correct. Absolutely. Oh, the, 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 the autonomous drone did sort of fly off on its own, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. And it, you do wonder in some of those big, what yeah. felt like disruptions, like to take FaceTime off yeah. of iPhone or something, whether they knew all along that's where they're going to get to, mm -hmm. they just gradually sort of introduced yep. and changed our ways along yep. the way. I'm sure uh, Keith would have seen that with getting autonomous technology accepted. Mm -hmm. you, you know, in the early days, I know you were running it in parallel with you know, traditional tech. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like I say, there's, there's still scepticism in the, in the market. Um, you know, running uh, an autonomous system beside a traditional system is, is the way to, to, you know, compare apples with apples. Mm. So um, definitely a hearts and minds exercise at the start of our, uh, the, at the beginning of the, of the business. It's more and more accepted. So with regulation, it's all about increasing confidence and, and, and that credibility. So let's not try and do too many things at once. It's like Matt is saying, these iterative steps are important, small steps, but it's also a, you know, that's also a model for growth. You know, scaling up is do you just buy more robots and get more people and, and, and do the same thing? Or do you diversify your servicing, your service offering? Mm. And in doing so, you're naturally organically scaling yeah. because you're exploring new markets. And it's taking advantage of, of knowledge when you enter into those markets that perhaps you don't have. And again, going back to regulation, you start building that up and you show your competence across these disciplines, then it gets easier. And looking for those common areas, I guess, across those disciplines right. as well. That's can I, right. Can I I'm just curious, actually, can I ask a question? Yeah, you can, because <laughs> I was actually about to go to our audience too. So <laughs> audience and those online, if you'd like to think of a question, that would be great. And I'll throw to Andrew in the meantime. Um, so, uh, you know, with, with my own business and advising clients, I, I, I'm now more and more looking for um, a single sort of market where they can basically dominate and become a monopoly first before spreading themselves too thin and think, oh, we're going to tackle everyone and everything. Um, is that, I, I can sort of explain with, with examples, but is that sort of a principle you approach as well? Like, where's a niche or where's a, a set of customers or a market we, we could just totally own that one rather than, you know, firing, you know, you know trying to tackle five at once. Throw a whole lot in and see what catches. Yeah. I mean, essentially it's a, it's a mindset of we don't want to just, we don't want to compete with everyone else. We want to win and that means 
a monopoly. So where could we get a monopoly first? Does that mindset, does that resonate with you or does that not make sense? Uh, it does to an extent. It's, it's hard to get a monopoly or identify a monopoly, but um, the variation on that that we took was to make sure we were working for tier one mm. operators on some pretty basic um, offerings, but just executing it really, really well. And that got our foot in the door, got the relationship started. Uh, we were then hearing what the client's problems yeah, were, and that gave us the platform then to innovate and demonstrate how our technical brilliance, if you like, mm. in, in solving more complex problems. And invariably, when you're then doing that, you're um, uh, attracting better margins, and, and, and that's where we build our niche. Um, and that's really building growth through your relationships in a way sure. rather than going to market with a whole lot of capital behind yep. you and going, here we are with a product, we're in market and we've got all these investors coming in. Yep. You're incrementally building with your existing client base and the relationships that you've got to take those changes. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. It's really interesting. Is yours any different, Kate? Uh, it's a little bit different. So it's um, certainly we weren't uh, when we formed the business or when the business was formed and I, I joined soon after, it wasn't to disrupt the industry. It was to embrace technology that was coming and be an early adopter of that technology. In terms of monopoly, yes, we wanted to get the brand out there. We wanted to do some pretty cool stuff and we wanted to be that far reaching, not just pigeoned into defense or offshore oil and gas. Or, so we were looking at you know, not only adopting the technology, customizing that technology, you know, really proving our worth, then what has happened from that, the group structure is that the brand at the top, Blue Ocean Monitoring Group, has now got sub-brands. So now we've looked at where best placed are certain types of technology. So we have a, a partnership with, with BP and Woodside on a, on a project, Blue Ocean Seismic Services. They're designing robotics from scratch to revolutionize the seismic industry. Wow. So we've no got, more leads going through and tangling up. Right. So mark. from an environmental <laughs> point of view, but that technology can also be used, used to find subsurface reservoirs for carbon capture storage, right? Yeah. So. You know, you get into something, and you know this is going to really change things up. Yeah, and absolutely. we're talking, you know, a, a lot of, of robots or nodes, as, as they will be called, they're in uh, development, they've been prototyped. We're going to have projects here in next next year in Australia. So, you know, that's one aspect. And then you look at defence. We've got two defence businesses called Marine Tech Systems in Vibra Lake here in Perth, and also in the UK. Um, can't talk too much about that, but again, it's you know, it's just looking at technology, customising and applying for defence clients. And then from my side of thing is, you know, this is all really interesting R&D and, and these, these groups have, have, have been formed. You know, my background's in, in, in marine science and oceanography. So it's a What's natural yeah. part of the business for, to, be, to be separated out. So I'm civilian commercial surveys. Mm. And, and that's where it's, it, it, it's gone to at this point. We're only seven years in. You know, there's, there's plenty of opportunity that other subdivisions will come. So yes, it's kind of get the brand out there it's not to get the monopoly, but certainly get the exposure. And then what you do is then you refine below that. So. And it's so interesting to hear all of you talk, because I think, you know, externally, for people who aren't actively involved in creating businesses and building businesses, there's a perception that you come up with an idea, you get some investment, and bam, you're off, and wow, you look at you, amazing billionaire, I wait, I'm just waiting for the idea to hit me. Um, but it, do, it doesn't come like that, does it? You know, you really have, all of you have such incredible academic base of, of what the business that you're in, or experience in those businesses if it's not academic. And then you're building those over time. You're laughing, Andrew, because... Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, look, uh, uh, this is where, where it's, it's West Tech Fest, um, a big week here in Perth. Uh, 
And I was having a conversation yesterday with, with someone who's about my age um, about sort of innovation and we just listened to a, a channel, a, a panel discussion on blockchain. And what we're reflecting on is there, there is a sort of, um, there are opportunities in crypto or emerging technologies actually for people with very little experience whatsoever to learn as quick as anyone else and not need a degree. And this included a subsequent panel with um, the founder of Pentanet, which is an internet yeah, service yeah. provider, saying, um, I guess, dozens of staff, but only two of them have an undergraduate degree. And similar to the, the panellist on, on crypto, she doesn't have a degree of qualification in this. She just committed to it, watched a lot of YouTube videos. Now, I think the interesting thing there is both of them are... Um, innovating and playing in a highly digital space that sits on a lot of infrastructure that's had a lot of design and investment and thought. And I think um, in different ways, we're probably working in industries where we're trying to collect data or build infrastructure or, or grow an industry where it really needs to be solid. Yeah. <laughs> really needs to be trusted and reliable. And so maybe we're bringing that sort of considered perspective. Absolutely. Whereas some people that are playing in you know, NFTs, crypto, ISP, where there seems to be a lot more scope to like move fast and break things. Yeah. Um, and it's not my problem or consequence if something breaks. Um, so I think that there and probably is a way to be really passionate, get a bunch of money, dive into a new field. You just might want not, not want to do it in the case where you're like building offshore infrastructure <laughs> whose lives depend on it. Or you're throwing yourself into the middle of the sea. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely <laughs> it. And I think, you know, that comes back to that political and regulatory environment as well as understanding the actual environment in which you are operating in and what are the big risks. And you're right, in terms of, you know, purely developing some code, I mean, granted, you probably would want to watch quite a fair few YouTube videos on how to code. But, you know, there are opportunities there that you can do in your lounge room that you can't do when you're trying to work out how to replace seismic leads with robots, I'm thinking. At that sea, with boats, <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> you know, <laughs> at great expense. Um, any questions from the floor or online? I've got plenty more, so I'll keep going. But um, I'll encourage those tuning in. Kelly is listening to you, so um, please feel free to type in a question um, as we go. Um, we've talked a lot about environmental passion and passion and all of you come to the marine environment because you are passionate about the marine environment and I think any business to truly be successful and sustainable in the long term, you really need to care about whatever it is, whether it's the product or the environment um, that you're operating in. But that can also be to a detriment, particularly in environmental causes where the world kind of all wants to do something, but it does take, as we've talked about, incredible capital and infrastructure and there's a commercial reality behind all great ideas. What do you think is the really, and I'll put it to anyone on the panel, the difference between a business that's built on an environmental passion or an environmental pursuit that can be made commercial? How do you differentiate between those two things? Uh, okay. we, we don't. So you don't? I love it. <laughs> so uh, our visions to enable ocean communities to thrive and our passions to build habitat um, and we're engineers and we've gone looking for business cases that enable us to build habitat. So we asked a very simple question is um, how, how our client has a problem like coastal erosion control, how can we solve that with habitat? And, and we're now building fringing reefs that protect shorelines. Yeah. Um, and, but it's underpinned by a, 
hardcore business case where there's coastal infrastructure that's under threat. Uh, the client has to sand nourish the beach, which is an annual cost to them. They've lost the amenity of the beach. Uh, tourism numbers might have dropped. Uh, so there's just really cold, hard commercial realities around w why they need to go and address that problem. Yeah. Uh, and we've given them an, op an alternative to dumping rock on the beach, basically. Um, you know, so instead of digging up one habitat and sticking it on top of that one, uh, we can go and build a, a fringing reef. Uh, and that achieves our goal of enabling ocean communities below the waterline to thrive, yeah. but also above the waterline on the coast. So It's a really interesting point. You're on a bit of, we've just been through a strategic planning session yeah. with the chamber and I've kind of come down to our staff and said, we've got just two key questions, you know, does it add value to the members and our stakeholders that we serve and who's yeah. going to pay for it? And I think, yeah. you know, what you've sure. kind of said is the same thing, yeah, yeah. but in a much more commercial sense and a much greater sense. Yeah. 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 Did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Kate? Uh, yeah, I think we're much the same in that we've, we've got environmental consciousness. Um, we don't, we're not there to stop projects going ahead. And, you know, these projects are only there because they have gone through sort of rigorous planning and a, an environmental planning process and a permit being issued. The beauty of the technologies that we use is that we can really augment some of those programs with you know, high-resolution data. Uh, so you're getting this, uh, an extra level of governance, so making sure that permits are adhered to uh, and the specifications adhered to. So I think that's one aspect. I mean, certainly you know, looking at it on a project level, we do it almost as a, we, you know, we, we, it's a subconscious decision. Are we doing the right thing? Uh, when we appraise technology, we're looking at, you know, are we going, is there an environmental impact? Are we going to lower cost? Are we going, yeah. to, going to increase uh, sort of uh, time, uh, flexibility? Yeah. All of these things come in. Um, our taglines challenge the conventional. If you can't improve on these things or you're making the situation worse, there's no point in proceeding with the, with the project. project yeah. you know, but on the other side of that, you can, you can actually make them better. You can increase accessibility to data. Yeah. You can improve the quality of the data, the resolution of the yeah, data. Yeah. So whether it be on a machine level or on a project level we kind of have that built into our system. So you're almost harnessing your passion yeah. to make constructive decisions. The environmental yeah. conscious is there, it's within the group. Yeah. It's not a it's not a checklist but it's it's we're we're pretty in tune with, with what's right and what's wrong. It's amazing. I feel like I could keep talking to all of you all day and I really would love to but I'm conscious that we do probably need to wind up. I'd like to run down the panel with one final question I guess for you all and it's one that I'm constantly in debate with people about as to whether it's better to be a market leader and out there in front blazing the trail or whether a fast follower makes life easier for everybody and you get more benefit. From a curious perspective, Andrew, what do you reckon? Market leader or fast follower? Uh, I'm going to say it's relative, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, because I think in, in many ways we've tried to be actually a market builder and market creator. That's true. Um, such that others um, can move into this space with more ease. Um, but we're following um, well-tested models and precedents in other countries that are more progressive. Um, but in some ways out of that, we may find an area in which we're, we're leading as a blue economy in Western Australia. Um, and you know, for, our, for my business that you know, we are leading, but you know, we're, we're following a lot of lessons that have been earned by others. Um, perhaps it goes to the question of, um, yeah, just seeing, seeing my, my business and what we're doing in the ecology of, you know, many other businesses, many other initiatives. Um, 
and not being too identified with whether we're a follower or a leader. It's just like, oh, here's a really interesting niche. We, we, we happen to be the best at this. We really want to improve this. This is our bit and our contribution. Yeah. Um, and whether we're, yeah, whatever we identify as that is or whatever people point to us at is not that important. It's, it's perhaps that, yeah, are we, are we adding more value and does it benefit those around us? That's great. Matt, fast follower, market leader. Oh, firmly in the leader yeah. camp. Um, <laughs> it struck and, me that might be Yeah, I think it, um, f firstly we, we want to create IP and and be out in front, um, you, you know, adding adding value and capturing uh, capturing margin. So that by, by design means you need to be out in front leading. Uh, I think often people uh, mix that up with being a bit loose. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, the second part of our motto is deliver rigorously. It's all about being competent. So, you know, you should never fail because you've been incompetent. You should fail because you're competently um, pushing pushing the edge. And and that's the, the thing that we value the most and in what innovation means to us. So, It's amazing. Yeah. Thanks. Keith, round it up. What do you reckon? I'm with Matt. <laughs> I'm with Matt. I think, um, you know, there's lots of moving parts. There's lots of components to how we construct these surveys. You know, a, a, an AUV, an underwater vehicle, is not just a single component. So, you know, in terms of market leading, yeah, we're pushing that technology to do things that haven't been done before, creating IP. We are relying on sensors that are created. We're not market leaders in the sensor design. It's how you put these packages together is the important part. Mm. And it's also looking at not just a one-dimensional, we work in the offshore energy sector, what's happening in medicine, what's happening in robo you know, robotics, what's happening in cars. Sensors, technologies, Matt, you, you touched on something you said that you don't have to reinvent everything, but you can, you can construct world-leading projects and expertise and teams by taking component parts and putting them together in the right manner. That's amazing. And I think it, in, through all of that, I'm just amazed at how, I guess, how many pieces of the puzzle you have to be across and how many eyes you have to have on all of the different horizons, whether it is from how you put the mm. technological pieces together or how you use the data or, you know, how you're dealing with the regulatory environment. You know, it does take brave and courageous people to go into new and emerging industries. Um, but, you know, when I guess you do, you have all of that energy and that passion that we've heard from you today. So thank you all very, very much for that. Did you want to say something no, else, Andrew? Also probably quite a lot of focus. Yes. You, get very, you get very distracted at looking at all these cool things. But, um, yeah, from both of you, I just get a sense of, yep, being innovative, but just like a deep sense of focus, like we know what we're doing. Yeah. It's got to be brutal about yeah. that. You yes. do. <laughs> and I love the fact that if it's been invented, don't, don't do it again. Don't You've got to be really it. clear about what your innovation is and and double down on that. It's fantastic. As I said, I'd love to chat on this all day, but thank you all very, very much. I think this podcast together with commercialising ideas and building stakeholder relationships is a, a great little trio if anyone's looking for some Christmas listening. Um, Chris from Cloud AV, thank you so much. Um, Cal, the City of Fremantle and those who've joined us in the room, thank you. And those who've joined us online. And we'll be back next month um, to talk about something else completely different. But uh, for now, thank you all very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs>